Good morning, folks. It's great to be with us, uh, you all this morning. I'm really excited about this series that's going to take us uh, all the way through August and into the first week in September. And I hope and pray it will be an encouragement to us, um, challenging. Uh, it's a, a, a wonderful story. If we know the book of Daniel, we might know about Daniel in the fiery furnace or perhaps more famously, Daniel in the lion's den. We're going to get there in week six. So this little series will take us through halfway in Daniel, and then we'll come back to the back end of Daniel um, perhaps next year um, so we can make sure we've looked at the whole book together. Let me pray as we come to it. There's a a wonderful verse in chapter 2 that we'll look at next week that says of God, yours is all wisdom and power. So let's pray for that wisdom to understand what this chapter is all about. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you've given us. Thank you that as Annie has testified, you have spoken into her life and revealed yourself to her. And we pray as we look at this wonderful chapter together that you would reveal yourself to us. Show us more about who you are and how you have acted in history. And please encourage us with the wonderful things we see in this chapter. Amen. I've called uh, this first talk in Daniel... um, Where in the world am I? But I guess listening to Annie's testimony, perhaps I could equally have called it a question to God. God, where are you? I don't know if you've asked that question. There's lots of visitors here, people visiting with family and friends. If you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian believer, it's still a question we often ask. God, where are you? Where are you in my life? Where are you in the mess that I go through? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in this culture that is increasingly godless? Where are you? I want to begin by reflecting on what I perceive, and I'm sure you'll share this sentiment. In many ways, the increasing hostility there is in this country towards the Christian faith, particularly when the Christian faith is sent to the public sphere. Just a few examples that you'll have seen. Our culture is, the big buzzword is that of tolerance. We're a very tolerant culture up until the point that we don't want to be tolerant, and then we're incredibly intolerant. And as soon as the Christian faith hits the public sphere, that suddenly becomes an area where we're very intolerant of Christian truth. Here's a few examples. You'll know the Asher Bakery story that continues. It goes all the way back to 2016. This is a couple in Northern Ireland who ran a bakery company, and they didn't want to put on one of their cakes a slogan that was offensive to their Christian faith, so they refused to make the cake, and there's been a huge legal um, battle going on over this. You'll have obviously seen Tim Farron, the um, ex-Liberal Democrat leader, who effectively was ousted from his own party from within because he continued to feel a a conflict between his Christian faith and his duty um, as a leader of this particular party. And he spoke publicly about this just before he resigned. Kirsty Adams, um, former MP of Hove, she is a Christian and she prayed for a man who was deaf that he would receive his uh, hearing again. And the next day, the papers had her face and her name slandered on the front page. And to quote one of the national newspapers, because of this act of praying for healing for a deaf man, she has proved that she is unfit for public service. That's just one little example. Um, And we can roll our eyes and think that's ridiculous, but it's happening all the time. I could give you 20 examples of where Christians in this country are increasingly being marginalized. So if you are a Christian, if you want to be faithful to Jesus, you'll probably increasingly feel like you're in the minority in this culture. You'll feel like the word of God is being suppressed at every place, particularly publicly. And I think perhaps one of the places this is most dangerous is in our schools. There's a real subtle agenda in a lot of our schools to increasingly teach our children things that have not been normal for so, so long, 
but are now being claimed to be normal. And if you hold a sort of more traditional view on certain things, then you're outdated and you're not keeping up with the times. And so children are hearing one thing in church and something completely opposed in schools. Really hard for our kids to be growing up in this generation. If you are a Christian, do you ever feel uh, kind of like the red dots in a corner? Feel often quite isolated, feel like the values that you want to live your life by, the things that you believe are important. Increasingly getting squeezed out, feel like in your workplace, perhaps even in your family, you don't fit in. I often feel like a red dot in a grey world. And so the question I want to ask us as we come to the book of Daniel, and really to encourage you, Annie, particularly on this special day for your baptism, is what will it look like for us to remain faithful to Jesus in a world where so few people know Jesus or want anything to do with him? And more positively, how can the book of Daniel encourage us to hold up the name of Jesus in this culture and to continue doing that even when it costs us greatly? One of the big themes that we're going to see all the way through the next six chapters is that of God's sovereignty, which speaks of both his, his character and his nature, who he is, but also speaks of the way he works, his rule in his world. And we're going to see all the way through these chapters that God remains in complete and utter control, even in situations where people like you and me are crying out, God, where are you? What has happened to our world? And so I pray that this will be a really encouraging series that will give you, if you are a Christian, confidence to keep trusting in Jesus. And perhaps if you're here and you're still thinking through, what do you believe? And maybe Annie's testimony has provoked you to ask some questions. Maybe this series will force you to ask a few more questions. God, where are you? Can you be known? Are you relevant in my life? Because it's the, the first talk in this series, I want to give a bit of context so we understand what's going in Daniel. If we can enter into Daniel's world, as it were, step in his shoes, if we can sort of feel something of what Daniel was feeling, then when we look at this chapter, it will make much more sense when we come to ask the question for ourselves, God, where are you? Or where am I in your world? So come to Daniel and notice what's happening in the first couple of verses. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so this is the leader of God's people, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off into the temple of his God in Babylon. If you want to read the history of this in more detail, go to the book of 2 Kings and chapter 24. It recounts this terrible time in the history of God's people where they were taken in two waves out of Jerusalem, God's city, and taken off into captivity in Babylon. It happened in two waves in 597 and 586 BC. So we're in the 6th century, and God's people are taken out of Jerusalem, and they're sent off to a foreign land. Here's a few pictures, artists' impression of what's going on. If you can look on the screen. If you know anything of the geography of Israel, this is the Kidron Valley. This is the city of Jerusalem. You can see here this smoldering wreck as the Babylonians come and invade, lay siege to Jerusalem, and cart off the exiles. Here's an artist's impression of all of the Jewish people being led out of Jerusalem and their great city in tatters behind them. A picture carved on some stone of some of the Babylonian rulers taking these artifacts out of the temple and taking them off into a foreign land. And this is the journey they took all the way from here in Jerusalem northeast and then southeast down to Babylon that's modern day Iraq it's a huge journey probably over a million people traveling terrible terrible time in the life 
of God's people. And there would have been famine, there would have been hunger, there would have been abuse, there would have been death. And why did all this happen? Listen to the words of God as he spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, or through Jeremiah to God's people. God says this, Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep on backsliding, so I will reach out and destroy you. I am tired of holding back. So this is a description of God's right anger at God's people who continue to ignore him, continue to not listen, continue to live life for themselves. And God says, in my anger, I'm going to allow this great power, the Babylonians, to come in to capture you and to take you off to a foreign land. I've asked Liz to read a few verses. This is where we get into the shoes of Daniel and his friends. How would you have felt if you were there in the 6th century, carted off to Babylon? Here's the first reading from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said... Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So those words are picking up what's called a lament. It's a prayer of crying out to God, God, where are you? How can I sing your praises when I'm in a foreign land? Listen to how another psalmist puts the same question in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever asked that question? I have many times. God, where are you? You're not answering my prayers. I don't feel you. I can't sense you're with me. It's a very normal thing for a Christian to cry out. And then listen to this next reading. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made an amazing promise to his people back in his history, speaking about King David, where he was promising that God's kingdom and God's city would never be destroyed. Listen to these words, though. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, God's people are reminded of these words. Your kingdom will never, will be established forever. And they go, well, yeah, right. Look at it. It's a smoldering wreck behind us. And we're now in Babylon. It looks like God's promises haven't come to be. And so this often happens in our life. We say, well, God, you're distant. Your promises aren't being fulfilled. Where are you? What are you doing? We'll come back to chapter 1 of Daniel. It's a pretty bad situation for them. First of all, we've already seen these articles from the temple are defiled because they're not just taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. But where are they put in Babylon? They're put in the temples of false gods. If there's anything to rub salt into the wound, this would be it. Terrible. And then notice how it goes on. Verse 4, they have to learn the language and the culture of the Babylonians. This isn't just physical captivity. The Babylonians want to capture their minds too. And as they learn the culture and the language, perhaps they'll forget where they've come from. And in chapter 1, verse 5, they have to serve a new king. And then verse 7, they're also given new foreign names. You imagine every time someone calls your name and they don't call you by the name that you were given at birth, they call you by a new name. It reminds you, you aren't what you once were. And you probably won't know this, but those names that they're given, the Babylonian names, they've all got connotations with different gods of the Babylonian kingdom. So every time someone calls their name, 
They're not just reminded, ah, we're not in Jerusalem, but they're reminded where they are, and they're reminded of the culture they're in. This is a terrible time for God's people. So hold all of that, all the horror, all the experience they've gone through. Hold that there. Look at it from another angle as well. Babylon was the biggest city in the world at the time. If you've heard of some of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon was one of them. Babylon was an incredible place. It was a place of great opulence, of great money and wealth, a place of education where astronomy and maths was kind of at the forefront. They reckon there were over a thousand temple shrines in Babylon. It was a very, very imposing place. Uh, If you think this is all made up, that is ancient Babylon. You can still go and visit it today, and you can see in the distance a replica of the walls that have been uh, built up. This was a real place, and it was very impressive. So on the one hand, God's people are going, where are we? What's happened to us is terrible. On the other hand, at first they get to this place and go, this isn't home. I don't want to be here. But gradually, perhaps, some of them at least would get used to being in Babylon. And I suspect if some of us were there, we'd end up saying, actually, this is all right. This is a pretty cool place. There's money. There's opportunity. Lots of different opportunities to serve other gods. Maybe there is something in that. And gradually, what they would have been opposed to, they gradually becomes more normal to them. And maybe eventually they assimilate altogether. And Babylon becomes like their home. Now, that's all the context. But that really matters. Because can you see the conflicting emotions that would have been going through Daniel and his friends' hearts? All the stuff they hated. But maybe some pressure to become like the culture around them. But I want you to see from this chapter, look at God's incredible faithfulness to his people. If we ask that question, God, where are you in my mess? As we read through that, you perhaps wouldn't have spotted all the little uh, references to it. But there are loads of references in chapter 1 to the fact that God is there with his people right at the heart of Babylon. Notice verse 2. Who was it that delivered God's people into the Babylonians' hands? The Lord. This was part of his plan from the beginning. So he was with them and he planned for this to happen. Have a look at verse 9. Who was it that caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel? God. And that becomes hugely important as we journey through the rest of the book of Daniel because God is moving these people, his people, into very strategic places because of what he's going to call them to do. Who was it that gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel and his friends? Verse 17. The Lord. And notice what kind of knowledge he gave them. Verse 20. Knowledge that made them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers in Babylon. That's hugely significant if you know the rest of the story of Daniel. And then perhaps the most subtle one. Look at verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, that might not mean much to us, but King Cyrus was not a Babylonian king. He was a Persian king. The Babylonian empire eventually was destroyed and taken over by the Persians. And the first king of the Persian empire was Cyrus. So this little note that you get here is a way that God is saying, notice here, I have put my people in this place, and they have outlived this great superpower. Lots and lots of subtle little links to show us that God is at work in this place. You know, uh, it's often illustrated, you know, kind of a a tapestry or or some sort of, um, when you're sewing, and on on one side of the tapestry or what you sew, there's just lots of threads, 
and, and they don't seem to be making any kind of a picture. It's messy and ugly, and there's lots of knots. But you turn over the tapestry or the piece of sewing, and what's on the other side? A beautiful picture. And sometimes life feels like that. Often it feels like we're living on the other side of the bit of tapestry, with all the knots and the bits of, of cotton, and it doesn't seem to be any purpose to it all. You're saying, God, what are you doing in my life? Where are you? I can't see how this is ever going to end. But of course, God is working on the other side to make this perfect picture, to bring about his purposes in his world. And if you were Daniel and you were there in Babylon, you would have been on the messy side. You wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. You'd have been thinking of all God's promises. God, where are you? But Daniel, bit by bit, came to understand that God was with him and was using him to bring about his purposes in a very special way. So if you ask that question, where was God? The answer is he was right there with his people in Babylon. Secondly, look at Daniel's faithfulness to God. Do you notice in verse 8? But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. Remember, Daniel is a Jew, and he comes from Israel, and there were very specific food laws that were given to God's people, primarily to mark them out as distinctive from the rest of the world. And he gets to Babylon, and they're eating all sorts of foods that they were not meant to eat as Jews. And Daniel says, no, he wants to be distinctive. If he starts eating the food that the Babylonians eat, he might as well be Babylonian. So he says, no, I have a primary loyalty, and it's to my God. That phrase there, he resolved not to eat this food, literally is he um, placed in his heart. So it's this desire Daniel had. He placed deep in his heart this resolve to put God first. And notice, it's quite a funny part of the story, verse 10. The official gets really worried. The official says, well, look, these guys are kind of civil servants. They're meant to be the brightest and look the best. And if they eat a rubbish diet and they start looking bedraggled, and they start serving really poorly, not only will they probably be killed, but the official overseeing them will be killed too. So Daniel brokers a deal with them. And I reckon he has to dig into the deepest recesses of his soul to broker this deal. Because look at verse 12. He's prepared to have a vegetarian diet for 10 days. Oh, the horror! The horror! And he eats just vegetables and water for 10 days. But see, it's a test. Have a look at verse 13. He says, okay, I'll eat this diet for 10 days. And if I look bedraggled, and if I'm weak at the end of it, then fine, I'll eat your food. But if not, just allow me to eat the food I want to eat. And notice the outcome, verses 15 to 16. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, I don't think this is a proof test for vegetarianism. I'm looking at my wife at this moment because I am a carnivore and she is not. It's not actually about the food. It's actually about obedience. Here was one of God's servants wanting to be obedient. Food was just the means for him to be obedient. And as he sought to be obedient to God, notice how God blessed him. So let me encourage you. There's a wonderful verse in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verse 30, where God says, those who honor me, I will honor And so if you look at this example of Daniel and you think of times in your life where you resolve, you literally place in your heart to put Jesus first and it costs you, be encouraged that God will honor you just like he honored Daniel who was faithful to him. So we've seen 
God is faithful to his people. We've seen that Daniel was faithful to God. Here's a question for you to think about and reflect in your own heart. How's your faithfulness going to God? If I asked you the question, um, what do you think faith in Christ means? I wonder what you would say. Let's have, let's have two or three people just shout something out. What, what does faith in Christ mean in a word? Trust, brilliant. Obedience. Hope, brilliant. Lots of different ways we could describe faith. I think perhaps in our culture, and particularly as we read the book of Daniel, maybe one of the things which has just been mentioned that we need to continue to reflect on, faith in Christ, at least in part, is speaking about obedience or allegiance to God. See, following Jesus sometimes can be costly. Annie knows this as she has put her trust in Jesus. It can be costly. A couple of examples, I've mentioned these before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, living at the time during Nazi Germany, he's written this brilliant book. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, you must read it. If anyone knows about what it means to be faithful to Jesus and, and for it to cost you, he is th- that person. He was eventually martyred for his faith. Or think of something more modern. Um, Simon Gidibold, who's working in Burundi, risked his life many times to be faithful to Jesus. And this book is very racy and very passionate Encouraging us that being a Christian can be costly. But if we go back to this little illustration, do you ever feel like a red dot in the corner? What's the easiest thing for the red dot to do? Become a grey dot. The easiest thing for you to do when it becomes costly for you to become a Christian is just to keep your head down and become like everybody else. Maybe just get to church on a Sunday, but a lot of people don't even see that. It's so easy for a red dot to become a grey dot. And when a grey dot is a, when a red dot becomes a grey dot, it's got nothing to say to a world other than to say, well, I'm just like everybody else. And my God's not real, and he makes no difference in your life. So easy for us as red dots to become grey dots. But we shouldn't be surprised when sometimes the Christian life is difficult. Listen to a couple more verses. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 10. Thanks. Sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So that was Jesus speaking to his disciples, sending them out. Do you ever feel like a sheep amongst wolves? Particularly sometimes when you seek to share the great love of Jesus with people and they just do not want to know. It's really tough, but Jesus says it will be tough. This gets even harder. Listen to Matthew 10, 34 to 35. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now There's a a context to those verses. We're not going to dwell on them for too long. Jesus' desire is not to cause division, but he knows that the gospel will cause division. And he's just making the point, sometimes that division can end up dividing families because loyalty to Jesus comes before loyalty to family. Really, really hard teaching. Jesus isn't being flippant. There's a context around it. We won't look at it in detail, but he's just making the point, sometimes to be a Christian can be really costly. And last example, more familiar words from Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Chilling words, aren't they? But they're actually words spoken in love to warn people who want to be serious about following Jesus that it's not always easy. So it's worth asking yourself this question. Maybe you could ponder this this week as you pray and think about these things at home. How is the culture around us shaping us? Or I'll be more direct. How is the culture around us shaping you? And how are you responding to it? I don't want to have a downer on culture. I believe in the common grace of God. There is so much in our culture that is good, that needs to be affirmed, that needs to be upheld. But it's worth asking the question, isn't there? To ask God for the grace to say, God, how can you help me to show greater allegiance to you as I live in a culture that is increasingly godless? What would that look like for you? Maybe in your family, maybe in your workplace, maybe in the use of your money and time. Maybe in the sort of places you go. It's worth asking the question. God is faithful to his people. Daniel was faithful to God, so be encouraged by his example. A question to all of us. How's our faithfulness to God going? And just briefly to finish, I want to encourage all of us, and particularly Annie, I want to speak to you on this special morning about God's faithfulness to you. Think about the book of Daniel. Think about that picture I painted before. Where is Daniel? What is going on? How will he have felt? And yet we see in this chapter, and we're going to see in the subsequent chapters in the book of Daniel, that God rules and that God was at work in Babylon and he was with his people. God came to meet his people in their greatest need, take hold of them and lead them through. You fast forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that exactly what happens? Think about the cross of Jesus. Everyone, when they see the Son of God hanging on the cross, goes, God, where are you now? Isn't that exactly what some people mock Jesus for? Where are you? If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. And everyone looks at Jesus hanging on the cross and goes, what's happened to God's promises? Where is he? Where's the hope? Where's the answer? Where's the outcome that you promised? And yet at the cross, exactly the same thing that happened in the book of Daniel happened again. God, in the person of Jesus, came and met with us in the mess of our world. And he took hold of us. And he says, I love you. And he leads us through death out to the other side. And so as God looked after his people in Babylon, it's just a tiny picture of how God was ultimately going to look after us through Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful picture. Now, what does all this mean for us? Well, no doubt you will continue in your life, and I'm sure, like me, you will continue sometimes to ask questions, where in the world am I? And probably as well, God, where are you? And we don't always get answers to those questions. But here's something that we can know. If you are a Christian and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, and this is very true for you, particularly today, Annie, what do you know in a world where there's so much that you don't know? you do know that God is with you because he has promised to be with you and promised to be with each one of us who have put our trust in him. So I pray that will encourage us and as we journey through the rest of the book of Daniel, let's cling to that wonderful truth. There's so much that I don't know and can't see, but this is one thing I do know. God is with me. And that's always the safest place to be. Amen.